Um, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Drones for Good podcast, the World of Drones and Robotics Congress special edition um, or second season. My name's Andrew Crow, as you probably know by now, um, from Mirrigan Unmanned Systems. Um, and today we're into our third episode of our special season, which is going to focus on the World of Drones and Robotics Congress held here in sunny Brisbane, 12, 13 November at the Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre in South Bank uh, here in, in Brisbane. Um, as you would have heard before, we had Associate Professor Dr. Catherine Ball on as the first episode, of course. We spoke to Nikki Rossow last week from XAP Tech doing some amazing stuff in robotics. And today I'm really excited to have uh, my first international guest actually on this podcast uh, all together. Um, today we've got David Hansel from Loon in the States. How are you going, David? All right? I am fantastic, Andrew. Yeah, how are you today? I'm really well. Hey, I think um, I should probably point out to my uh, listeners immediately that David is sitting in this, uh, looks like this amazing cabin in the middle of nowhere with these huge trees in the background. Um, can you tell the listeners uh, where, where we're recording from today? Yeah, so I have a place up in a little town called Truckee, uh, California, which is about 20 minutes from Lake Tahoe and sort of at the mid-northern part of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, and the trees you're actually looking at are, are actually much, much taller than you think they are because <laughs> my house is sort of up on stilts a little bit. So th those are like, oh, maybe 20 meters high, probably, um, what you're seeing there. So, uh, yes, I am in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. It's fantastic up here. I think if, if any of our listeners can think about a stereotypical cabin in the middle of the mountains with these huge sort of pine-looking trees in the background, that's um, that's where David is lucky enough to be uh, talking from today. Um, yeah, if so David's, uh, David's head of, he's uh, global head of aviation regulation and policy for this amazing project or this amazing company called Loon. And we're going to get into that um, a little bit later on. Um, today, we're going to talk about not only um, David himself and, and his background and also Loon itself. And, and we're also going to talk about um, the World of Drones and Robotics Congress that's coming up and, and why you should get along and why it's exciting. Um, but before we get into the loon, David, I, I want to I understand your background. Um, obviously, sure. you know, the role you're in now is, is, is pretty impressive and, and obviously making a massive difference in the world, which is, um, which is huge. And, and we'll talk about that when we talk about loon a bit more as well. But um, I did notice from, uh, from some LinkedIn stalking that we've got a bit of a common background in service. Um, whilst yep. I was Army and you were Air Force, that, that's all the same once that's we okay. get out, I that's think. That's okay. So can you okay. um, can you give our listeners a bit of a background? How how did you uh, go from I guess you know serviceman in the um, in the Air Force to now global head of aviation regulation? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. I, I wake up most days wondering how I navigated that. Quite frankly, um, I guess you know my earliest uh, memories were um, aviation related. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, my dad used to take me to. Philadelphia airport and we would sit sort of um, on the perimeter fence and watch the planes take off and land. And I have just always loved aviation. It's just in my bones. And so when I got out of high school, I joined the Air Force a long time ago. Um, <laughs> so it's been about 27 years now that I've been involved in aviation in some way. Um, flew briefly uh, on the E3 AWACS as a computer technician, uh, did that for a few years and then got out I went back to went to college and uh, studied there for a while and just missed the Air Force. Uh, so mm. left college and went back into the Air Force and right. <laughs> uh, really dove in to aviation. Yeah, as an air traffic controller. So I worked at a number of towers here in the United States. I was in Europe, uh, in, in Bosnia 
um, and then got out for a couple of years and bounced around doing some contracting uh, at some federal contract towers here in the U.S. and also in Afghanistan. And then in 2006, strangely, I got bit by the military bug again. And um, <laughs> it'll do that. Decided it will. It, it's like <laughs> the mafia it just pulls you back in every time. <laughs> And um, I had an opportunity to become a translator and we have ground-based and aviation-based translators and I picked the latter and I wound up uh, working for Air Force Special Operations Command flying on um, a number of different aircraft and, and basically um, I would intercept insurgent communications, translate what they were saying and, and then provide that information as sort of a force protection measure. So I did that for... Um, a number of years, spent most of my time in Afghanistan with that because of my language set. And in 2010, my wife and I both decided we missed California a great deal um, and was tired of living in the desert. And so um, I got out and moved briefly back to California, um, but only briefly because the federal government came knocking and I had an opportunity to go work at the intelligence shop for the Federal Aviation Administration. They, um, as part of the government, they have to have an understanding of the, of the national security implications that, uh, that their decisions uh, create around the world or that our their decisions are impacted by. So I did that for a number of years and, and was uh, part of a, a great team there. And then I had an opportunity to run the strategic intelligence shop at the Transportation Security Administration, which uh, was sort of looking at all the threats to all the modes of transportation, whether they're here in the United States or, or around the world. And got super, super lucky uh, coming out of that. I had a very good friend who was working at the White House as the head of aviation policy there. And he was leaving that and he asked me if I'd like to come and interview for that. So I was super excited and very fortunate to be able to join the National Security Council during the final two years of the Obama administration, uh, 2015 and 2016, uh, where I was the director for transportation security policy. So sort of the voice of the president and the national security advisor across all of the government agencies. So the, hey, every wow. executive branch that has anything to do with transportation, we sort of serve as, as a bit of a referee uh, for those folks. Um, and that was really, that's really strict diehard aviation policy. You have to mm. have a, a really great understanding of all the rules and laws, regulations that apply, uh, but also whose equities control what. So what is the scope of authority of the NTSB? How do we manage our partner relationships on transportation issues? And, um, and as I was coming to the end of the Obama administration, um, I, my, again, wife and I decided it was time to try to get back to California. And it was just pure serendipity that at the time, Facebook was looking for a head of aviation policy. And the work around what Facebook was doing with the, the Aquila program, the goal of stratospheric unmanned operations, was exactly really what I had been doing uh, for mm. a number of years, this is sort of regulatory interpretation and navigating the halls of the FAA and, and partnering with various government agencies and international partners to try to get permissions to fly, to get the regulations in place that support those kind of operations. And uh, really just a, a, an amazing team doing amazing things. I did that for about two years. Um, Facebook decided to sunset that program. Uh, the technical and monetary challenges were, were probably a bit insurmountable for that, for that type of vehicle. Um, 
so I left Facebook and went to DJI, where mm -hmm. I worked on uh, U.S. And, and international policy on the policy team there, um, working on small UAS, obviously, uh, a very different, uh, very different uh, ball of wax there. Uh, and then after I did that for a bit, um, I found the Loon posting. They, they had posted they were looking for... Basically, I, I was so lucky if you had taken my resume and just flipped it around into a series of questions like, have you done these <laughs> following things? It was the Loon announcement. And I had worked with Loon um, as part of the Upper Aerospace Working Group, uh, which was something that we formed under uh, the Aerospace Industry Association in 2016 to sort of coalesce the industry um, mm -hmm. around the manufacturing certification operational challenges that we all shared. And so I was as close to an insider as you could probably get uh, at being aware of what Loon was doing. And so interviewed uh, many, many times with lots of uh, really great people. And um, almost the, it's almost been exactly one year now as, as we're sitting recording this. Uh, I started uh, with the team here in, in Mountain View, California. And it's just been it, it, as cool as I thought it was looking at it from the outside. It's, it's even cooler being on the inside of it. It's always good being being inside the tent and, and actually seeing what goes on. Um, it must yeah, be it really good. is. Hey, um, a couple of things that come to mind. You mentioned your linguist background, and I like telling people that I've always got so much respect for for um, people who've done that that linguist you know type work. I um I did some testing for to become you know to look at uh, languages and stuff in the defence force in in the Australian Army, and was told that you probably couldn't find anyone less with less aptitude for languages than myself. So I'm going to leave languages to... Um, yeah, I was quite excited. At least I'm not run of the mill. Um, I, I, had, I had no... Yeah, there was no one with less aptitude than, than I, so that was exciting. Um, but I heard you, your background there, David. You've gone from really an operational background into a policy background now. Was that a conscious shift or was that a just a, a moving into different roles? I think it was probably a combination of, um, you know, I think operations, at least what I was doing uh, in the military. It's a young person's game. I was, yeah. I was getting pretty worn out um, living in the desert. Um, and what really I thought was interesting was sort of every step of, of my progression in the Air Force, I was getting deeper and deeper into the, the why of, of what we were doing, which I just, I really was really drawn to that. I thought it was fascinating. And the work at the White House was really the sort of the pinnacle of that uh, mm. as far as the government work, because that is where all policy originates for the United States, whether it's the military, Department of State, you name it, it all comes from there. And mm. that was sort of my, the, you know, my Mount Everest, uh, at least in, in government service. And it was fascinating to be able to shape and create policy that people would go and operationalize and and ideally in an effort to do good things like we we yeah. we shepherded in um the part 107 which is you know our our version of Cosser part 101 um and this whole industry blossomed out of that and um and that's just really it's just really rewarding and and i think the other thing is um is policy is really a people job it really is building trust and, and shaking hands and, and delivering on promises um, and, and being known as sort of a, a good 
contributor to to what we're all trying to work on and i love uh, personally that's the kind of legacy i'd i'd like you know my i want my daughter to live in that kind of world and think about mm. service to other people and and so it really it kind of checked all those boxes for me yeah, fantastic. And, you know, certainly from having a look at Loon's website, and we're going to talk about it more, there, there's obviously um, Loon is doing stuff for the greater good too, not only, not only you know, um, operationalizing policy and, or building policy to be operationalized for commercial benefit, but there's real human benefit in, in what you guys are doing. But we'll, um, we'll jump into, into sort of that in a second. Sure. Um, I, want, I do want to jump into Loon now and, and talk about Loon. So something that, that I keep talking about a lot over here in Australia is, um, is problem-centric solutions, not solution-centric solutions. And people that listen to this podcast are probably sick of hearing it because I say it probably every single week. But it's really about defining, you know, as opposed to building a product and then trying to market a product um, to find it to, to suit a problem, it's about finding a problem and building a, building a solution to meet that problem, um, which is something that, that some people, particularly the most passionate of people don't do because they've really got a passion to build this or build, build X and then they want to try and find a solution for a problem for X. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about Loon? So what, what sort of is the, the mission, the goal, the aim and, and where Loon's trying to head? Yeah, so our goal is to get the world connected. Um, when you look at the, the globe as it sits in terms of connectivity, about two thirds of the world right now has decent access to the internet, what we would consider, you know, 3G or higher, um, anything you could expect to have on your, on your phone. And the other third does not. They have either 2G or lower or nothing. And there's a few reasons that folks have nothing. Um, and one of the big reasons is infrastructure. There's, a, there's societal issues, there's cost issues, there's education issues. Um, but one of the biggest uh, blockers to getting people connected is infrastructure. And there are myriad reasons why people don't have ground-based infrastructure uh, to get connected, especially you go out in, in a lot of parts of the world when you get out of the main big city, uh, there is no infrastructure, there is no power, there is no water, there are no technicians who can maintain a cell phone tower. It, mm. it, it just doesn't exist. And so what do you do in those cases? You hope that maybe the signal comes from the nearest city or you um, have microwave hop systems. None of those are efficient. None of those are, are, are going to give someone the experience that you and I and, and your listeners have, um, hopefully, you know, in our homes or in the towns in which we live. And so Loon's solution is let's bring the cell phone tower to you through an aerial based infrastructure such that you don't have to rely on ground-based power. You don't have to worry about a technician having to go out to build that. So you lower your, um, your CapEx, your initial spend costs uh, of building a tower, dragging a fiber line 500 miles out uh, into um, a, you know rugged territory or someplace mm. that you're going to cause a lot of environmental damage. Like there are folks who live on you know the far side of a pristine jungle, and you do not want to drag um, a fiber line through that. You can't mm. in a lot of cases physically impossible. But or does that build mean a that thirty people... or build a thirty meter tower or something? Yeah, there? exactly. Yeah, and, and th but that should not then prevent the folks who live on the other side of that mountain ridge from getting mm. connected. And, and Loon's goal is to get everyone connected so that we can raise the quality of life for folks through access. Access gives you communication. It gives you 
connectivity to your family and friends. It gives you medical advice. It gives you mm. education. It is the core na- now in my mind of, of what the future is for us. And, and we want to help try to elevate that. Yeah, fantastic. And and I read through the website. Uh, I had a look through your website as well. And uh, there's obviously a hell of a lot of um, technical stuff going on. And, and as, as yeah. um, not the most technical person in the world, although, um, you know, I'm pl- sure there's plenty of people that do understand it. Can, can you give us a bit of a rundown of how it actually works? Sure. Yeah. Um, you and I are in the same boat, but I, I, uh, I have the <laughs> translator's background where I can take it from super smart engineers in my company um, and make it hopefully uh, accessible to most people. Um, So the way the system works is uh, we use a mesh network of balloons flying in an area that needs service. And we have ground stations in various locations in the country, which are usually at the end of a mobile network operator's network. So as far as they would be able to go with their ground-based infrastructure, we'll Mm -hmm. install a ground uh, station there. And that station will transmit up and receive down from this fleet of balloons that can communicate with each other down an entire mesh. Um, So we could have a ground station in one location and we can stretch a mesh several thousand kilometers um, using millimeter wave technology as the balloons sort of shoot the signal down from balloon to balloon. And then there is a 4G or LTE antenna which delivers an area of connectivity, sort of a cone uh, that's exponentially bigger than what a ground-based cell tower would be able to provide. We partner with mobile network operators to do that. So if you have your uh, phone and you're connected to your, whether it's Voda or Telcom Kenya or Verizon, AT&T, you would never know that you were connecting to one of our balloons. It would still say, uh, mine says Google Fi, obviously, as a a part of the Google family. Um, But it would say the exact same thing because we do that in partnership with the local mobile network operator. And, in and that maybe way, just to apply also... context for Australia, all it would say is, you know, if it's, we're in the middle of the outback and we don't have any cell reception, at this point it would just say Telstra or Optus or Vodafone or exactly. whatever our yep. whatever our network provider here is in Australia. Yeah, precisely. And that that does a lot of wonderful things. First, it um, it lets us use existing licensed spectrum, which is a huge issue. Um, we don't want to compete and buy. Um, spectrum in the world where mobile network operators already have a, a customer base. Uh, they have the licensing, they're local. Um, and using our equipment on a mobile network operator system, um, we are not, we're not taking jobs from anybody. If anything, we're enabling jobs on the ground uh, to do that kind of installation and work and, and transferring technology and education and learning and really helping reinforce uh, mobile network expansion around the world. Um, and then sort of the magic that happens behind the scene is a remarkably intelligent uh, group of flight engineers um, who are basically software engineers who um, operate our balloon fleet around the world. So we steer our balloons by climbing and descending to catch winds that are favorable to take us in the direction that we want to go. So we launch a balloon. Your, your standard unmanned free balloon um, is a weather balloon, right? The, okay. what, what has been flying since you know the, the 40s in, in large numbers. 
uh, with just a weather observation system on board. You let it go, it flies, eventually it comes down and you go and get it. Um, but you don't have any control over where that goes. We navigate using the wind. So we launch from here in Winnemucca, Nevada, um, which is about four or five hours um, east of me here in the northern part of Nevada. And we have another launch facility in Puerto Rico. And we launch those and we, we basically tell our system, we want this balloon to go to Kenya. And the system says, okay. And it takes all this aggregated data that we have about weather, about high altitude wind, about storms, and it navigates. And every second or so, we get about 2,000 pieces of data related to the performance of the vehicle and to the atmospheric conditions around the balloon that gets transferred back to our Loon Mission Control Center. And then the computer just constantly is evaluating, okay, this wind maybe higher is better, so I'm gonna try that and it'll climb and, and it, it catches the wind that it needs to get where it needs to go. So it's a really amazingly complicated uh, and, and remarkable grouping of technology, both in on um, the telco, being able to link a 4,000 kilometer long mesh network of mm. balloons is, is amazing. Being able to, you know, beam that down to users on the ground is fascinating. And then to build and operate the air vehicle itself is, is remarkably uh, technically uh, challenging and rewarding. Right. I've got so many questions. I'm not even sure where to start at this point. Um, so tell me about the balloons. So, that you, so you mentioned the balloons. Um, can, can you give us an idea of how big they are? Um, how, sure. how long do they stay in the air? And the other question I've got looking at looking at your, um, the website and the technology is the LTE device or whatever it is that sits under the balloon looks bloody expensive. So how do we make sure that that doesn't necessarily get destroyed on landing? Um, and the other sort of questions yeah. around range and distance and how do we, you know, sure. all those sort of questions. <laughs> Yeah, no, those are all the good ones because uh, they, they are amazing stories. Uh, yeah. the, um, the balloon itself, when it's fully inflated, is about the size of a tennis court. Um, so okay. it, is a, it is a very large balloon. You can see it um, with a, a decent pair of binoculars from the ground. Um, pilots often see them when they are transiting okay. up because you can see them from, from a, a decent distance. They're very well lit. We meet all the requirements for lighting and all that fun stuff. So, um, so you can definitely see them and you can watch them on, on Flight Radar 24 um, or Flight Aware or any of the big websites that do ADSB monitoring. Um, yeah. So... Um, they they're big um, and they are they are remarkably yeah. impressive. They fall under uh, the regulatory guidance for Part 101 here in the U.S. is our unmanned free balloons um, regulation, which is is a fairly straightforward and 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 easy to comply with uh, from a safety standpoint. Um, reg. So that's that's the the size question. Mm -hmm. um, you make an excellent point about uh, damaging the equipment when we land the balloons. Um, right now, we actually, it, it's interesting, we, we land our balloons using a parachute system. Okay. Um, and in every other form of aviation, if you are using your parachute, that's a really bad day. Uh, but for... <laughs> But for us, it's actually ops normal for us. It's not that big of a deal. Um, it, um, the, the way the parachute system deploys, it tends to flip the payload upside down a bit so that it sort of comes down in, in sort of three kind of bigger sections where you have the balloon, which is now deflated sort of 
flapping gently underneath the payload, the payload sitting mm -hmm. there in the middle, um, and then the, the uh, landing parachute system sits above that. Um, you're going to damage stuff. It's unavoidable. Yep. It's a big pay. I mean, it looks like a satellite payload if you look at it. Um, but we do try to ruggedize that stuff as much as, as humanly possible. The big challenge is always weight. Uh, we, I mean, we fight for, for grams uh, mm. in, in trying to make our, our systems efficient. So it's difficult to prevent something like that from, uh, from getting damaged. But, uh, but we do what we can. Uh, but yep. they're often not, not entirely reusable. And how, uh, when you put one of these into the air, how long will it stay up in the air for? And how many have you got in the air at any one time? Sure. That, the, the second question, it, it, it varies greatly. Yep. Um, we could have between 50 and 100 at any given time is probably wow. fair. I think okay. we have, I think we have like 80 up right now. I'd have to, I'd have to pull up um, our system to see. But um, you say 50 to 100 at any given time. But that is constantly scaling up um, as we do more service around the world. And we just announced a partnership with Telcom Kenya and went live uh, there uh, earlier this year. We have an entire fleet of, of 30 odd balloons that are just dedicated to flying around uh, Kenya and East Africa. Um, the longest that we have flown, our, our world record is over 300 days. Um, wow. That was, yeah, that was a, an amazing flight that um, ama it amazed all of us um, because up until that point, you, you know, we were, we were aiming in the, in the mid twos. We think we have a responsibility. We don't want to drive these balloons to failure. That's, mm. you know, the, the earth is mostly water. And if we drive these balloons to failure, the odds are it's going to come down in the ocean and it's going to, you know, destroy habitats and it's going to be fish food. And we don't want to do that. That That is anathema to, to kind of our core values about taking care of the, the planet. And so we control when and where we bring those down to the, to the greatest extent possible. You're going to have system failures uh, mm. that necessitate landings earlier than that. And we continue to partner um, a great deal. We actually do a ton of work with um, Australia's air services. Uh, yep. We have sort of a, a, an area off the West Coast where we do end of life testing of our balloons where we just keep them out there and um, keep them out, let's say 200 and I'm just picking randomly 275 days and let's bring that down. And now let's analyze every part of it. What part was, was breaking down? What part was getting close to failure, which parts surprised us and, and lasted much longer in those really harsh environmental conditions. And, and what can we learn from that to make our systems better? Um, but we try to keep two, 250 to be, you know, to be good aviation partners with the other operators who are in the sky. Fantastic. That, that's actually much longer than, than I expected. Um, yeah, so tell yeah, me more amazing. about your you tell me more about your role though. So aviation regulation and policy. Uh, what what are you doing day to day, and, and what are some of the what's some of the stuff you're working on at the moment? So I my work is sort of divided into two major scopes. Uh, the first, I have a team uh, that's run by an amazing guy um, who does all of our overflight relationships and permissions around the world. Yeah. Um, the ICAO Annex 2 Appendix 5, which governs unmanned free balloons, obligates us to get permissions uh, before we overfly a nation. So we take that obligation very seriously. We have an amazing team that travels all around the world, building on this trust and building on um, uh, you know, a, a very deep bench of technical and safety experts 
to convince folks, hey, we can operate safely in your sky. Please let us do that uh, so that we can help uh, enhance uh, connectivity around the world. So that's one part of, of the scope of, of my work. The other part is helping the company and the industry navigate the existing regulatory environment. And in places where consistent regs do not exist, helping ANSPs, the air navigation service providers and, and the regulators around the world develop regulations that are safe and accessible for everyone who wants to get up to the stratosphere. Um, Loon has taken an approach from its inception that the regulations that exist have to be largely agnostic to the vehicle. So if you're a fixed wing solar powered aircraft, if you have the technical acumen to get up to, to 20 kilometers, um, we should have some trust in your ability to be concerned about safety. We should have some, uh, some partnership with regulators such that we can share data to make the sky as safe as possible, safer than the current standards, um, and help design a, sort of a, a roadmap for not just safety, but also the implementation of con ops around the world and uh, type certification if necessary. Because right now, um, there is no consistent, one consistent type cert basis that addresses like the HAPS Mobile or AeroVironment or Airbus Zephyr type vehicles mm. and, and our vehicles. There is no type cert path for an unmanned free balloon here in the United States, but you can make a decent point that our ability to navigate uh, that in and of itself speaks to sort of stretching what part 101 was ever intended or capable of doing. Um, and, and a lot of regulators around the world are asking those questions. And we think that's a good question to ask. We, we, we sort of look at it at that we want to operate safely. So that's our con ops. That's how we actually fly. And we want to be safe to operate. And that is how are we building these vehicles? And that construct exists in, in traditional aircraft. And there has to be a way to, to define that for these types of vehicles as well. And so that's a lot of what I do is, is partnering, not just with the regulators around the world, like, um, like CASA, uh, as an example, uh, Eurocontrol and EASA, uh, but, but here in the United States, um, working on, on things like exploring a new type cert base, uh, type certification basis uh, for, for these types of vehicles, the development of um, upper altitude uh, traffic management concepts of operation. Um, and basically, I basically do a lot of data sharing um, and yeah. helping, helping regulators understand our data. And then in the reverse of that is appreciating what their needs and demands are and, and helping my company sort of operate within that. It's, uh, you know, ultimately CASA, the FAA, EASA, their job is to protect the general public from our vehicles. And you have to appreciate that, that that's mm. their mandate. Um, so all of the engineering in the world is just a fun science experiment if you cannot help your company fit that in to a regulatory framework that, that the regulators are obligated to apply to us. So, um, so that's where I spend the, the other half of my time. I guess from, um, and something we failed to mention earlier, I guess, is these, these balloons sit at about 
20 kilometers above above um, mm-hmm. above the ground so we're sitting at that 60,000 you know feet space where in the past it's kind of been a bit of the wild west where once you get up over 60,000 kind of do whatever you want and it's interesting to hear that you know not only are you talking around policy um, to operate in that space but also you know the requirements of the aircraft that sit in that space at the same time notwithstanding the fact that to get to 60,000 feet We've got to transition through, you yep, know, manned absolutely. aircraft space as well. We don't can't just, you know, teleport to sixty thousand feet. Has has that aspect of your role been difficult? Getting, you know, getting the approvals that, you know, not not the above sixty thousand feet stuff, but from the zero to sixty thousand. Um, it hasn't been. It, I wouldn't categorize it as difficult. It hasn't been easy, um, but I also wouldn't say it's been it's been the hardest thing. I I am quite frankly. I am more challenged, I think, by not zero to 60, but 60 down to zero. Yes, um, okay, land- coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> landing is always um, is always something that's a little more uh, difficult uh, because the conditions under which we are landing, sometimes it is, you know, we, we have to come down. And, um, and so what do you do with that if I'm in an area where there's a very well-traveled jet route, you know, how do I not be abusive of this shared uh, resource, right? Mm. The, the, the sky is a shared resource and only one thing can be in any one spot at any given time. And so if I'm there, you can't be. So um, what I've really been really heartened by is that uh, like to a person, every regulator that we have approached um, with some really noteworthy, like, lights on top of hills, kind of folks like CASA, like the FAA and like IASA particularly, um, have really, and also um, the Kenyan Civil Aviation Authority has been fantastic. They have really been about, this is a, an, a fascinating challenge. Let's figure it out. Hmm. No one has slammed the door. No one has said, no, we're, it's just stay out of our sky. Um, and you're right, uh, you know, being at 60,000 feet is a little bit it, it is a little bit easier, but it's getting harder because yeah, absolutely. As, yeah, as technology advances, more and more things are becoming possible. So there are business jets today that sort of clip the bottom of um, our altitude range. They can hit 45, flight level 450. They can hit that yeah. without, without much difficulty. Um, there are military equities up there, the uh, supersonic and hypersonic vehicles that will transition through. They don't want talk to us, but they want to know where we are. So yep. we have to contemplate that. And then there's, uh, you know, look, looking down the road, there are um, supersonic commercial aircraft, such as Boom and Arion that are going to be coming online. And if we're only building a, a, solu- a con-op solution or a traffic management solution for today's challenge, that's, that's just a waste because in five years, there's going to be three new vehicle types up there. So how do we plug them into a standardized system uh, for deconflicting traffic without overburdening air navigation service providers. Um, it sounds similar not, to the, the whole unmanned traffic management problem, you know, the 0,000 yeah. feet for drones and, and yep. you know, the other stuff that the other company, you know, within Alphabet Wings been been traversing yeah. here in Australia too. Um, you're just on, yeah. the, you're on the other side of that. You're on the upper end of that scale as opposed to them operating yes. the lower end. Yeah, and I'm really, I'm very fortunate to have had great companies uh, like Wing, um, Airmap, uh, DJI, who have really put in so much regulatory work to establish standards for safety, to establish 
um, data exchange standards for interacting with air navigation service provider systems so that we can take, we're not going to take an entire UTM system and just port that up to yep. 60,000 feet. Technically, that is not feasible. It's, it's, it, but the standards, the principles, the, the, you know, the common things that, oh, like, I understand that now, they, you know, they tread that territory years ago for me. And so we gain uh, this, and one uh, again, one of the things that I love about the aviation industry is we all stand sort of on the shoulders of of other giants um, in in making these advances. So, hopefully, down the road, you know, ten years from now, someone will, you know, oh, oh, you know, Loon helped build this traffic management system for high altitude, and now my company can just plug into that and and you know take stratospheric operations to the next level. So um, I love the vision of Loon. I think you know what they're doing is great from a from a social perspective and and from a um, from a uh, yeah social conscious perspective, etc. And and I can absolutely see the reason why we would want to put um, you know internet or or even connectivity into the middle of Kenya or somewhere. You know, it's not about them accessing social media; it's about them accessing uh, you know medical requirements and education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, sure. So what do you what do you see the main barriers are though? Why aren't there why are there 10 loons around the world? Why, why are there not more people doing this sort of stuff? Or, or, or I guess the flip side of the question is as well, what barriers have you come across and why aren't, why aren't we sort of bigger than we are at the moment? Yeah, um, it's hard. It's, it's, really, <laughs> it's really hard to do. If it was easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> exactly. But the good thing is I think we are making it easier. There's yep. some folks um, mm-hmm. in the industry now, go back in time eight years, um, Airbus Zephyr, didn't exist. Um, mm. uh, Aerovironment, uh, Haps Mobile. Um, these, these, like it was literally f- a violation of the existing understanding of physics for these things. To fly. <laughs> um, and so nobody was thinking about it. So we're, we're still very early on in in the process, and and people I think are still grappling to understand how we can apply these, these, these solutions in a way that address a problem to your, you know, to your Mm. early point. Um, It's not easy to convince everybody that this is a a viable solution. It it takes forward leaning partners who are willing to take a risk uh, that, that this will uh, be a better way to spend their money because it's, it's also not, uh, it's not free. Um, Mm. And so you have to have, some folks who are who are visionary with their with their money as much as we are visionary with our with our engineering and our, our policy work. I do. Th- I see more and more. Uh, you know, from my position, we I'm part of the Haps Alliance, which is a a group of tele, uh, um, mobile network operators and um, aviation companies who are interested in stratospheric operations, and we get new applications all the time. Um, to join the aviation working group, uh, to join the telco working group. We get them a lot, um, a a few a month. And that was when I started this even four years ago in 2016 uh, with the upper airspace working group, there were, I think, five of us. And there's probably 20 of us now. And I don't know if every one of those will, you know, come to commercial fruition. I sure hope they do. Um, but it, but the conditions are getting better. I think the other big challenge we have is that um, there is a regulatory barrier. Um, I am not pessimistic about it at all, because as I mentioned earlier, 
to a person, every regulator I've talked to has wanted to find a solution. Not, yeah. not one of them has, has just flat out said no, um, which is great. Um, but that's, that's also not an easy space to navigate. If you don't have that background, you then you have to go pay an aviation attorney to navigate it for you. And that's not free. And mm. um, so these, these challenges really sort of, uh, you know, build um, upon each other. And we're, we're making advances every day. And um, I have yet to encounter any sort of like major setback where I was like, oh man, this one's going to be a, you know, a real killer for whomever. Um, yeah. But like I said, it's also, it's really hard to fly up there. A vehicle that's <laughs> optimized, a vehicle that's optimized to fly well at 60,000 feet does not always fly very well at 5,000 feet, right? And you have to get all the way up to 60. So the chances of, of risk between here and there are, are, are pretty real. And, and so it's complicated, but that's no different than anything else we've encountered in aviation. I mean, I would not get on a right flyer if you paid me, but, you know, but I've got a million miles with United uh, that yeah. I don't even hesitate to get on one of their planes. So, um, so it's, it's evolving, which I'm, I'm really optimistic about. Yeah, and that's it's, you know it's fantastic to hear. And I think um, you know we, we talk a lot. You know our, our rules in Australia are changing around um, around aviation, around drone delivery, and around you know UTM and where we can operate drones. And I think there's and I was on a working group as part of one of our peak bodies here in Australia around drone noise. It was it was a noise working group. And, and what a, what would a um, common person in Australia find acceptable and not find acceptable? And funnily enough, when, when you start talking to people, um, if I'm dropping a, a defibrillator or, or some sort of medical device to my next door neighbour who's having a heart attack, no one could care less about how noisy that thing is. But when you want to drop a coffee next door, people sort of say, well, is, is the payoff yeah. there and, and what's the concern? So I think when yeah. you've got this social enterprise, you know, trying to do things, then, and we're, you know, it's not, it's not about us, you know, we're sitting here with 4G or 5G and, you know, someone might actually really appreciate 3G in the middle of nowhere. So I, th I think it's a it's a it's a um, a fantastic vision and and you know yeah. goal for your company. Yeah, the social policy aspects are 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 really intricate and complicated to navigate. I th you make a really great point. You know, if I'm dropping a defibrillator, do do you care that mm. it's making that really? Um, but yeah, you know, delivering a burrito, a little less sympathy from that. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, the vision, I, I was just on the commercial UAV expo on a visionaries panel there and I was moderating that and we um, were, it was the visionaries panel. And one of the big questions and, uh, was about how do we make drones so incredibly boring, like that nobody cares, like you don't even think about it. It's no different than a car driving down your street. How do we get to that point? Um, because then the social policy issues just fall apart. And, uh, and yeah. it becomes a little easier. Yeah, that, that is a really good point. And funnily enough, one of the one of the points that I brought up is that you know I don't I don't blink an eye. I might be frustrated sometimes, but I don't I don't really blink an eye when my next door neighbour starts mowing his lawn at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and that's probably going to be louder than than dr certain drones doing things. It's because people are desensitised might be the wrong word, but you're right. It's it's just part of society. You know, we see ambulances driving past and police cars driving past with lights and sirens. We don't we don't necessarily um, you know, we, we don't blink an eye at that. Uh, and but drones are new, and you know what? Unfortunately, people like to complain at times too. And normally, it's the the one person that, that makes yeah. a lot of the noise and, and everything else. It's the human condition. It is. Hey, look, we better talk about World of Drones um, yeah, as well while we're here. But uh, I think um, just on reflection of the last, you know, 40 minutes, I think there's a future podcast here and, and potentially we can talk about, uh, you know, 
I, in my mind, can't even fathom how you can get a balloon to navigate certain places and where you want it to go. So I think there's another podcast here to talk about some things in a bit yeah, more detail. <laughs> so um, so just to, to step into World of Drones, so World of Drones and Robotics Congress um, being held here in, in sunny Brisbane, um, although it's overcast today, um, 12, 13 November, Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre in South Bank in Brisbane. It's a very, very COVID-safe event. It's probably one of the only conferences or congresses to go ahead this year in Australia. It's absolutely the only face-to-face drone conference happening in Australia. Um, so we are super excited and it's in my backyard just um, just down the road. Mirrigan's uh, the major sponsor and, and obviously we're involved in it pretty heavily. Um, but for you, David, so what are you presenting on and what are you talking about? Yeah, so we're going to discuss a, bit, a lot. I, I, I kind of spoiled it because a lot of it's going to be what <laughs> we discussed here. Uh, but still, come, it's going to be great. Um, the uh, other aspect is um, we're going to touch on uh, safety in uh, stratospheric operations and how do we develop a collaborative traffic management system for the stratosphere? What does that actually look like? And, and how do we implement that without... Um, without lowering any safety standards and without being overly burdensome to um, air traffic uh, systems around the world. Um, you know, controllers are peaked on on their mm. workload and we don't want to make that worse, but we have an obligation to be safe. So what's our vision for doing that? And that's uh, a system uh, that we call CTMS. So I'll be uh, discussing that as well. Brilliant. So um, a company, this is an Australian Drone Congress or, although, and Robotics Congress, although it had, does have obviously worldwide reach. But so why is a company like Loon getting involved? Why, why, what drew you to World of Drones, I guess, as well? Yeah, so great. It's a great question with uh, honestly a fantastic answer, uh, at least in my mind. Um, when you look, when I, as, as a policy nerd, when I take sort of a policy survey. Policy nerd, I like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, when I take a survey of um, regulators and air navigation service providers who are really leaning forward in innovation while at the same time maintaining safety, CASA and air services have for years risen to the top of that list. Um, I love the FAA, former FAA employee. I, I love the work that the FAA is doing. Um, on the global stage, uh, from our perspective, Casa and Air Services are, are amazing partners and really innovative. And they do a lot of work um, on the international stage. They, um, they are partners uh, on the, what's called the SASP, the Separation and Aerospace Safety Panel. Um, uh, up at ICAO, the UN body that regulates aviation around the world. Um, and they have an amazingly intelligent engineer, mathematician, um, who has helped us and helped the world community measure uh, safety for some time in, in unmanned systems operations at altitude. And it only makes sense to, to go uh, to your backyard and, and yeah. have these conversations. Um, we're a global company. We uh, service around the world. There's no reason why we shouldn't be as omnipresent as, as we possibly can be. Uh, there are there's two major drone conferences in Australia every year. There's the AAUS, our past mm -hmm. symposium, which we were going to participate in. Unfortunately, COVID, that was scheduled right around the time of COVID. So we recorded our presentation uh, for that. Um, but I've been drawn to, the, before it was the World of Drones and Robotics Congress, it was just the World of Drones Congress, and I met uh, Dr. Catherine Ball, who's heading that up, and she is just a 
an influential and inspirational powerhouse in, in the world of, of unmanned systems. And she said, hey, uh, you should come sponsor this and participate in this. And I, uh, that was it. I said, yeah, of course I will. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, sign me up. So, um, and, and like I said, I mean, Australia is such a wonderful partner for our, for our operations, for the regulatory development, for innovation. Um, it, it just makes good sense for us to, to honor that and, and uh, come to town virtually. I would love to come. I won't be able to come, um, obviously, but I'll be there virtually. So um, we've, I've done a bunch of virtual presentations around the world. They usually work out pretty darn well. Yeah, brilliant. And um, I certainly echo your your sentiments around um, AUS and and also World of Drones and people getting along. You know, I, I think they're very different conferences in what they're trying to achieve and yeah. do. And yeah. we're big supporters of AUS as well. We're, we're a member of AUS and we, I sit on a couple of their working groups and I think um, they, they do a fantastic job, you know, Greg and Sally and the board there yep. um, as well. Uh, I wanted to ask you, though, why do you think people should come along? Why, why, should they, uh, why should they bother? And if they can't get here in person, do you think they should get on board virtually? Yeah, for the second question first, I love I love doing that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, if you can't get there in person, uh, get there virtually. I love Brisbane; it's a great town. I, I, I've <laughs> been to, I think I've been to two of the two or three of the previous uh, World of Drones and Robotics congresses. Love love the town, um, love the opportunity, and there is there really is no better convergence of. Um, all of these interests, all of these people who are really forward thinking, who are willing to take calculated risks to advance unmanned systems, that's happening there. I mean, you got, you know, Queensland University of Technology, um, ANU doing tons of amazing academic work, all the companies that come to talk there. It really is the place to be if, if you're passionate about this work, even if you're just interested in like, hey, what is that drone doing? What's it capable of doing? What do I have to be concerned about? Um, it's, it's where you're gonna learn all of that. Um, and it's just, it's also great people. The, the conference is a lot of fun. It's educational, um, you get to see last year or the year before there's great drone racing that i thought was amazing yep. i'm not that good of a drone i'm okay i'm not that good of a drone pilot. <laughs> um so i find that fascinating but um it's yeah it's just where it's it is the place to be in 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 your part of the world if you're interested in this and passionate about this yeah brilliant um, hey, David, we, we might look at uh, wrapping up here now. It's probably gone a little bit longer than I expected, but I, I think we could talk for another hour um, if we really wanted to. Um, I think Loon is a, is a fantastic you know, social enterprise or, or whichever way, whatever way you guys um, put it over there. Where can people sort of get more information if they want to sort of find out more or you know, potentially some telcos are listening or, or people in the industry? Yeah, a whole bunch of great touch points. Obviously, our website, uh, loon.com, you can find us there. Uh, we just expanded our social media reach. So we're on Twitter now. We are on Instagram now. Uh, if you want to get more like the, the, um, the neat social media aspects of photographs and videos and things like that, and you can chat with uh, some of the Loon employees every once in a while on those, uh, which is amazing and, and, and very neat to see. Um, those are probably the big locations where you'll find us. We're on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, if you have questions, uh, honestly, I love uh, like 
please feel free connect with me send me questions i love it um it's it, it again I, I mentioned this before it is one of one of the things i really love about our community is people are just kind of always passionately searching for answers and and if mm -hmm. i can be part of that uh absolutely absolutely love to do that so um yeah you can find us we're out there on all the big social media brilliant David, um, thanks so much for joining us on, I think, your Thursday afternoon, our Friday yes, morning yeah. here in uh, here in Brisbane. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time. I'm, I'm really pumped and looking forward to, to your presentation at World of Drones and uh, look forward to having a beer with you in 2021 once you, uh, you come over Absolutely. for the next World of Drones Congress. I will be there. I will take you up on that. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, David. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's great speaking with you. Take care. Looking forward to seeing everybody next month. Fantastic. Thanks. Take care.